Okay. We, uh, we looked at all of this from, uh, from a bird's eye sort of view, from 30,000 feet, if you will. Uh, looked at the, the big story. Um, and we want to come down from 30,000 feet to maybe 10,000 feet, something like that. And having looked at the, the macro, uh, look more at the sort of mini-macro story that begins to unfold for us uh, in Genesis 1. And we're going to look at uh, these first five verses, consider a little bit more than the first five verses, and then uh, we'll pick up uh, again next week at the end of this chapter and look at the concluding portion and hopefully get through this first chapter in a couple of weeks. Although it's tough to do that, I must say. So hear the word of God. Genesis 1, verses 1 through 5. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening and there was morning the first day. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word, this particular portion of it. We ask you now for your spirit. You've you've given us your word so that we might not be in darkness, Um, but we need your spirit to shine your light upon us your word so that we might understand it and we need your spirit to take your word and apply it to our hearts so that we might go from this place um, enabled to do as best we can the things that you convict us about, the things that you speak to us about this morning. So please, Lord, be present with us as we consider your word by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. When people write books, they write books um, assuming that somebody's going to read them. And, and typically they have an audience in mind or they have a particular agenda, if you will, as they write books. This last summer I read a book that had been recommended to me by one of the members of our congregation. It was a book on Abraham Lincoln's presidency called Team of Rivals. It's a great read. Um, and, uh, and the author had a particular interest, and the interest that she had, Doris Kearns Goodwin is the author's name, her particular interest was to understand how Abraham Lincoln, among other things, could manage to recruit his three principal rivals for the 1860 Republican presidential nomination into his cabinet, and rather than having them as opponents and enemies, have them as allies and friends. It's a great, it's a fascinating story and a wonderful read. 
But here's the thing. She had a particular interest and a particular concern as she wrote that book. Now, if you go to that book on Lincoln, expecting to learn a whole bunch about his parentage and his growing up years and and youth and all of that kind of thing, you'll be disappointed. Because it wasn't her purpose to talk about that. She had as her purpose, assuming that there was an audience out there, somebody who would be interested in this particular subject, writing about Lincoln's cabinet. That was her purpose. That was her aim. If you go to the book looking for something else, again, you'll be disappointed. You'll be asking questions of the book that the book is not really interested in answering. Now, when you come to the Bible, you're not coming to something that just fell out of the sky. You're not coming to a book that somebody dug up out from under a rock or something. You're coming to a book that has a particular audience and you're coming to an author who has particular interests and concerns as he puts this book together. And that's true of the whole Bible, and it is especially true of every particular book in the Bible. It's true of Genesis. Uh, again, these first chapters don't just sort of fall out of the sky and, and uh, contain some information that we find interesting or fascinating. There is an author behind this book. There's a particular audience in view. And the audience has particular needs, and the author has particular interests. Now, I'm persuaded, I think there's good reason to believe this, that Moses is the human author, but we understand, I trust we understand, that there's an author behind the author. And there are many points at which the human author might not be entirely sure what it is that's going on in the very book that he's reading. In fact, the more you read the Old Testament, the more you understand that there's a whole lot more going on than these authors really understood. But they were faithful and they wrote. And you see the greater fulfillment of everything that they were writing about in Jesus. And it's as you look back through the cross and through the lens of Jesus that we're able to see things that I'm not entirely sure Moses or Isaiah or any of the other Old Testament writers could really clearly see. We see it because of our perspective. They saw it dimly. But the point is that Moses is a human author and God, who is the author behind the author, are writing to particular audience who have particular needs, particular concerns... And God, who is writing for that audience through the human authorship of Moses, has particular purposes and aims in view. And I want you to understand, I'm not dodging anything in suggesting this to you, what I'm about to suggest. But what I want to suggest to you is that if you come to the book of Genesis, failing to understand that, you may be asking questions of Genesis that Genesis isn't really interested in answering. Uh, one, one author, one writer has put it this way. He said, the tension, and this is, of course, what I have in mind, and I suspect you may have in mind, the tension between modern science and the book of Genesis is largely resolved if we understand that the book of Genesis and modern science look at the created world from two different perspectives. Genesis is wrestling and asking the question, 
who created the worlds and why. Modern science is asking the question, when were the worlds created and how? Modern science is not in a position to answer the former questions. And Genesis, frankly, isn't that much interested in the latter questions. Now, does Genesis speak to the creation? Absolutely, it does. We'll see that more clearly next week. Is there information in Genesis about the origin of the universe? Absolutely. But God has other interests and other concerns and other purposes in conveying and revealing what he has revealed through Moses to Israel at this particular moment in her history. And those issues and concerns are of greater importance to Israel and to us, frankly, than are, not that these others are irrelevant or inconsequential, they're not, but these other issues are of greater significance to Israel and to us than some of these other questions. Who's the audience? Who's the original audience? Well, the original audience is the nation Israel. Where is that original audience? Well, that original audience is someplace between Egypt and the Promised Land. That's when this information comes to Israel. Just, just note this. Up to this point in Israel's life as a nation, they have stories. They have oral tradition. They know something about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. In fact, if you look at Exodus 14, verse 31, they not only have stories about Joseph, they have his bones. They've got his coffin. They have his sarcophagus. He died four centuries before. He was buried in Egypt, but his last words to the nation were, Take my bones with you when you go. I want to be buried in the promised land. And so Moses was faithful to that. And when Moses led the people out, they dug up that sarcophagus, they dug up that coffin, they dug up those bones, and they carried them with them. So they know about Abraham, they know about Isaac, they know about Jacob, they know about Joseph, they know the stories. But you know what the human mind and the human heart will do with stories. Because of our frailty and our fallibility, we'll distort them, we'll corrupt them. And what God is doing, as Israel finds herself between Egypt and Canaan, is correcting misunderstandings, setting the record straight about several things, as we'll see, the first of which is himself. The first thing that God is concerned to correct the record about, set the record straight about, is who he is. Who he is. Now again, this is background stuff, but think about where this nation is. This nation has been living in Egypt. They've been living in the midst of a polytheistic culture where there are multiple gods, gods all over the place, a god for the sun, a god for the moon, a god for fertility, a god for the spring, a god for the summer, a god for the fall, gods everywhere. A couple of gods who sort of 
rise to the level of supreme gods in the Egyptian pantheon. And having lived in that culture for all of those centuries, they were affected. They were shaped by that. How do we know that? Well, we know that because they brought them with them. God is forever through Moses or through Joshua or through somebody telling them to get rid of the other gods. They brought them with them. Their minds have been bent out of shape, twisted. Their understanding has been distorted. And what God is doing is setting the record straight. He's correcting their thinking about who the one true God is. He begins with himself. Uh, Again, think about where Israel is. They're between Egypt and the promised land. They've seen remarkable things, stunning things. They've seen these plagues that afflicted the nation. They heard the cries of mothers and fathers in Egypt when eldest children were found dead. They saw the Nile River turn to blood. They watched as the gnats swept across the nation and darkened the sky. They heard of the locusts that consumed all of the fields in Egypt. And there they were in this little spot, Goshen, where they were protected and kept. So they've seen things. They've experienced things. They they watched as this mighty wind came rushing Again, in the book of Exodus, came rushing across the desert and separated the waters of the Red Sea. And they went through on dry ground. And they saw it when those waters collapsed on the army of Pharaoh and consumed the army. And then they find themselves out in the wilderness and they're eating these Ritz crackers that form every morning. And they're they're Ritz crackers that have a little honey mixed in them. They're sweet. And they do it for six days, but then there isn't any on the seventh, and they're supposed to collect enough for the sixth day and the seventh day, and if they collect more than that, it turns to maggots. They're experiencing miracles every single day. They watch Moses as he takes a staff and strikes a rock in the midst of a wilderness, parched, barren desert. And water gushes forth from the rock to keep the nation alive, to keep their livestock alive. So they have stories. They have traditions. They have also distorted thinking, wrong understanding. And then they're witnessing day by day by day by day these strange and bizarre phenomena. And they're asking the question, who is this God? Who is this God? And God wants for them to know and understand clearly who he is. And how he is different from the gods of the Egyptians, the nation out of which they've come, and the gods of the Canaanites living in the land to which they are going. God is very determined that they understand 
the difference. They're a pilgrim people between Egypt and the promised land. And as they make their way, God wants them to know who he is first of all. Hit the pause button. That's exactly who you are. That's exactly who you are. You are a pilgrim people between your own personal bondage in Egypt and the fulfillment of the promise of God, which is the promised land. And God's first concern for you and me, his first interest for you and me is that we understand rightly who he is as we make our way to that promised land. Creator, Lord, benevolent King who blesses his people when they live under his rule and his reign, live faithfully before him in obedience to him, even in the midst of the wilderness, making their way to the promised land. Okay? That's where Genesis begins. That's where it starts. With God speaking to a pilgrim people who've left their bondage, who are on their way to the promised land, who have stories and impressions and are witnessing miracles every single day, God's first concern is that they understand clearly who he is. So who is God? What is he like? Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, God. I said to you last week, I think it was last week, that the Bible doesn't argue for the existence of God. It really doesn't. It simply asserts that God exists. And then God, as he, having asserted this fact that he exists, begins to disclose more and more and more of what he is like shapes the understanding, the thinking of his people. In the beginning, God. Last week we looked at the macro, that there are these four big ideas that the whole of the Bible hangs on. In fact, the whole of human history hangs on. God exists. God has created all things with men and women at the apex of his creation, distinct and different from everything else, with a dignity and a value unlike anything else, designed to rule and reign with him over the world that he has made. Something terrible has happened. And God, since that terrible thing has happened, has determined through a victor, to reverse the awful effects of that terrible and tragic fall through a victor, through a conqueror who would come and who would destroy evil and the evil one and set everything right. Now we begin to dive into who this God is. The God who is there before in the beginning. God who exists before time began, God who exists before anything else existed. The term that's used in Genesis 1-1 is a plural term. You may know this. The, the Hebrew 
word for God is simply two letters, L, E-L. It's the basic root that gives rise to all of the different words in all of the Semitic languages for God. Allah comes from the same root, the same basic Semitic root. But here in this text, it's a plural form. Not El, but Elohim, plural. Now, why is that there? What is suggested by that? Well, clearly, God is not intending intending to convey to Israel that God is many. In fact, one of the burdens of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and the rest is to disabuse the nation of these polytheistic notions, to get these ideas out of their heads. What's the central affirmation of the nation? Deuteronomy 6.4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is your God, the Lord is one God, not many gods. And that affirmation is repeated again and again and again and again. So clearly this plural term is not intended to convey the idea of multiple gods. But what is intended by it, it seems, is to convey the idea that God is supremely majestic and supremely glorious, that he alone is divine, and that he, out of him, comes all else, that he is full, and that he is fullness, full to overflowing and abounding. That's what seems to be conveyed by that term. Now here, as you think about this word, Elohim, and you think about what is conveyed by it, this idea that God is supreme, that he's supremely great, that he is majestic, that he is full, that he is the source of all else. Let me suggest to you that in addition to this opening phrase of the Bible being a declaration of God's existence, it's also an invitation. It's an invitation to stop. Push the pause button again. And with this declaration... Wrestle with the question, what really is sufficient to account for everything that exists? What is sufficient to account for everything that exists? For the whole of the world around me, everything that I can see. What's sufficient, adequate to account for this? It's an invitation to us, but let me suggest to you, and I said this to you a couple of weeks ago, I think, that as you wrestle with this, you want to understand there are people around you, people in your neighborhoods, people where you live, people with whom you work, people you associate with, maybe members of your families, who quietly, in their own private musings, by themselves, alone, are asking that sort of question. What is big enough to account for everything that I see, everything that I hear, everything that I feel, everything that I desire, everything that I want, everything that I long for? What is sufficient to account for this? What I said to you a couple of weeks ago is that gospel can be understood in this narrow sense, the biggest sense in a certain sense, 
this narrow sense. When we talk about gospel and good news, we're talking about the cross. We're talking about what God did in Jesus to reconcile sinners to himself. But what I suggested to you is that Genesis is good news for people of our day and our time. People who have these questions, people who wonder where there are these musings. What is sufficient and adequate to account for everything that exists? Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God, the divine, the full, the majestic, the glorious, the source of everything else. And with that declaration is an invitation to consider it and reflect upon it and to consider your own view of the world or to encourage your neighbor to think about his or her view of the world. How do you think about these things? How do you think, for example, about the sheer vastness of the universe around us? The stuff we talked about last week, the beauty of sunrises and sunsets, but the sheer expanse of the heavens, the limitlessness of it from the seemingly infinite to the very tiny and delicate, the leaves and petals on a flower, or the intricacies of the human body. I'm I'm out of my depth here when I start talking about these things. But I learned something, for example, about the endocrine system years ago. Not very much, just enough to make me dangerous. But what I learned about the endocrine system is that is just one system among many systems in the human body, the tolerances within which that system must function are so narrow and so fine that if there is the slightest imbalance, it will cause the organism to suffer illness and even death. The tolerances are so narrow that there's no way in the world that the organism could grow into that condition, could develop that system, because without the system, the organism can't exist. It can't get to that place because it can't exist without being in that place, if that makes any sense. The system is so delicate and so finely tuned and so refined. What is sufficient to account for that? What is sufficient to account for the intricacies of the human eye? The delicate balances surrounding our vision. What's adequate for it? Whether you consider the greatness of the universe or the precision and delicacy of flowers and the systems in the human body. But beyond that, beyond that, beyond these material things, beyond these things that scientists rightly care so much about. By the way, when we get to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to see that Adam was the first scientist. That Adam was the one who began giving names to things. Again, I may be... I'm out of my depth here a little bit, but what is science? It's exploring, it's examining, it's testing, it's finding things repeatable. And when you find something, then you give a name to it. You put a name on it. That's what Adam did. He gave names to all the animals. Bob Dylan wrote a song about that years ago. 
we're going to find that science is rooted in the creation. But this, this stuff that scientists rightly care so much about, the material universe, the material order, that's only part of what is there. How do you account for these other things as well? How do you account for things like love? Where does that come from? This, this desperate need that I have to be loved. This incredible capacity that I have terribly imperfectly expressed <laughs> to give love. Why is it that I find I am the most human when I am both loving and being loved? How do I account for that? How do I account for things like justice? That I care about things that are right. Everybody does. I don't know if you've thought about this. This is, okay, hit the pause button on the pause button at this point, but... I don't care where you are in the political spectrum. Everybody's passionate about their political point of view. And what lies beneath that political point of view is some sense that some particular action or course or policy is the right thing to do. How come people care so much about what is right, about what is just? What is sufficient to account for these things? Why is it that when we look at atrocities, when we look at genocides, our hearts scream out, there is something wrong here? You see the question we're asking, what is sufficient to explain everything that exists? Everything that exists. What is big enough to account for it? Where is the fountain out of which all of this emerges? That's an undeniable thing, isn't it, that something exists? Isn't that that undeniable? I mean, I know there are people who have questioned whether or not anything really exists. I've tried to get my mind around that, but I can't. And the, the... first trouble that I have with trying to get my mind around that fact is the fact that I have a mind encased in a body that thinks and and ponders and wonders about these things. And And so to posit that there isn't anything presupposes the existence of something who is positing this crazy notion that nothing exists. I mean, I think it's an undeniable thing that something exists. But where did it come from? In all of its fullness in all of its size and intricacy and splendor. Where do these things come from that are within us? What is big enough to account for them? What is sufficient to explain them? Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God, who is divine, who is majestic, who is glorious, who is fullness, who is the source of all that exists. Whether the material things we can see or the immaterial and arguably, in one sense, more important things that we cannot see. 
things like love and kindness and justice and goodness. Those things cannot be the mere byproducts of neurological, electro-impulsive, chemical processes in the human body. There's something bigger than that. And the source of all of it is this one, this one who declares certain things to be good because he himself is good. Repeatedly in Genesis 1, you get that refrain. The source of all of these things is this one who hears the cries of his people and has compassion for them. Compassion originates in the fountain of compassion who is God himself. These things originate in the God who cares for the poor, the widow, and the orphan, and who makes provision for them in the laws of his nation. Why are those laws there? Because there is a God who is behind those laws, who is the source of mercy and kindness, who the Psalms tell us is a father to the fatherless and a husband to the widowed who gives the alien a place to live and dwell. What is sufficient to account for everything, whether the material things we can see or the immaterial things that we cannot see, but which are just as real as this lectern or the chairs upon which you're sitting? Now, where do we go with this? Well, here's where I want to challenge us as a congregation to go with this. I I want you to believe me when I tell you that there are people around you in your neighborhoods where you live, in the places where you work, in your networks of relationships. I want you to believe me when I tell you that there are people out there who are wrestling with these things, who are troubled by the conflicting ideas that they hear, who see Islam and the threat that it is and who wonder about it and who ask questions about the God of Islam, who are influenced and shaped by the modern scientific mind and who wonder about the origin of the universe and the origin specifically of the human species and wonder whether or not there's anything intrinsically or inherently different between you and the chair you're sitting upon. They wonder about that. People around you, deeply influenced by the smorgasbord of ideas in our culture, represented in a book like the Da Vinci Code. They wonder. And here's what I want to encourage you to do with this. Beginning where the Bible begins with this fundamental assertion that God, Elohim, is the source of everything that exists because He is majestic and glorious. He is fullness. He is the one who is independent and self-existing. Here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want you to start looking. I want you to start exploring. I want you to start probing. I want you to start praying 
And maybe you have. And forgive me if I'm telling you to do something you're already doing. But I want you to begin at that point by praying and probing and exploring. Praying that God will lead you to that person who is wrestling with these things. So that you can ask this simple question. What is sufficient to account for what is there? And just get into the conversation with them. Probably a dozen people will shut you off before you get past the door. But I'm telling you, there's somebody out there who's wrestling with these things and who wants to talk about them. Why can I be so sure of that? I can be sure of it because the God who is the fullness of life and created the universe in the first place and filled it with his life is in the, biz- in the business of creating new life in people's hearts and souls. He does it. I can't do it. You can't do it. He does it. He's out there. He is changing hearts. He is giving new life. He is giving new birth to people. And as that begins to happen, people begin to ask questions and they wonder. And all I'm asking you to do is pray and probe and explore and try and find them. And just ask them this question. What is sufficient to account for what is around us and in us? And just get into the conversation with them. Don't be afraid of their questions. Don't be afraid of their questions. But just ask. Probe. Pray. Ask God to take you to them. And then as you get into conversation with them, wherever they are, just bit by bit and piece by piece, begin to tell them about this God who is really there. The infinite, personal, majestic, glorious, compassionate, loving, just, righteous, good God who is the source of all things. So that's my assignment for us. Not just for you, but for me. To pray, to probe, to explore, to go looking for them and to get into conversation with them. Let's pray together. Lord, uh, we, we bow before you and worship you and adore you because you are great and glorious and majestic. You are full of life. And we praise you that you have given us eyes to see it and hearts to believe it. Oh, Lord, may we grow in affection for you more and more deeply, loving you, thanking you, praising you for the God that you are. But Lord, would you give us grace to know the same compassion for others that you have shown toward us? Would you give us eyes to see them? Would you give us words to speak to them? Would you give us the boldness that we need to pray for them and to trust that you will lead us to them? And Lord, would you by your spirit range across this county? There is no one in this county so big that you cannot humble that person in a moment. That you cannot open eyes and change hearts and cause deaf ears to hear things which they could not hear and in fact hated to hear. But as you brought the worlds into existence, you can change these hearts. 
And we pray that by your Spirit you would and cause this wonderful intersection to occur where as you work in their lives, you put us in their paths that we might be those who convey these glad tidings to them, that they might ultimately come to know Jesus as freedom and forgiveness and life and hope. Lord, hear us as we make these prayers in Jesus' name. Amen.